Amen. Thanks, Joe. So good morning. I did introduce, introduce myself before. Let me do that now. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. We are continuing this morning in a series we've been doing for most of the summer. We're we've entitled it Inside Out. Uh, it's from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, and John 15, this morning, John 15, 4 through 13. Those scriptures are printed for you in the worship folder. Uh, they will be on the screen behind me. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible, you'll see the page numbers for the Pew Bible there that you can read from if you'd like to. But let's read together. Let's begin by reading these two passages of Scripture uh, this morning. We've been reading 2 Peter 1 every week, so we'll do that again. And then John 15, where Jesus talks about abiding in him. Let's read. Peter writes, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus himself, this teaching in John 15, where he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my, my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, for greater love has no man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. This is God's word. The third book of the Narnia series in publishing order is Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And uh, the children go on an adventure to find the seven lost lords of Narnia who sailed west but never returned. But the real adventure, the real quest, is the way each of the characters is confronted with their own deficiencies and weaknesses and sins in the course of their journey on the seas, the Dawn Treader is, is a boat, is a ship. So Lucy, who is one of the Pensavy children, it, it has to overcome her vanity and her jealousy towards her sister, and she's confronted in a very unique way about this. Eustace, who is her cousin, is actually turned into a dragon uh, by the greed that's in his own heart. Edmund, Lucy's older brother is proud, which we've known from the very beginning when we were first introduced to him in the, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But he has to 
He has to really be, con- be confronted by his pride, and he refuses to give way to Caspian, who is the rightful king and leader of the, of the, the voyage. And so C.S. Lewis is taking us to school here. He's wanting us to see that the, the real adventure in life is the quest, whatever quest you're on. There's a quest underneath that quest, and the real adventure, the real quest is to become a person of character, to have the stuff that you need on the inside, to be able to meet the trials of life and not just survive, but thrive and even make a difference. And that's what 1 Peter 1 is about. It says there, if you have the right stuff on the inside, then no matter what's happening around you, right out here, no matter what's happening out here, you'll, you'll be a success. So what everybody needs, everybody, this isn't really a, a message just to Christians, this is a message to, to, to people, no matter where you are on the faith spectrum, what everybody needs is to become a person of faith, and virtue, and knowledge, and self-control, and steadfastness, and so forth. But also, if you follow along, we're taking those each in turn, one by one, every week. But also godliness. He says, add to, add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, supplement with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, verse 6 there. So that's our topic. Supplement steadfastness with Godliness, and I love that word. The, the ESV translates it supplement up at the beginning in verse 5. These are qualities that are a health regimen. They're supplements. They're daily vitamins. And if you have them, all of them together, you know, you take this vitamin and that vitamin, you put it all together. If you have all of them, you'll have the strength of character that you need. But if you have a faith deficiency, just like a vitamin B12 deficiency in your body, if you have a faith deficiency or a knowledge deficiency or whatever the case might be, it will create a weakness in you spiritually. So godliness. We need godliness. Well, what does Peter mean by that word? Well, we might think, well, that's easy. I know what that means. It means that we're to be like God, and that is true. We should be imitators of God, we read a little while ago. But uh, we've been made to reflect his glory. We've been made to look like God. We're images of God, the Bible says. But the word refers to something more than that. It describes, and here's the way I want to put it. So get this, because this is really the key this morning. I think what this word means is it, it describes a life that has a Godward orientation, a life that is full of, of God. And the thing about <clears throat> a life that is full of God is if, is if you have a life that is full of God, you will eventually become a person who is full of the life of God. Let me say it again. If your life is full of him, then you will become a person who is full of his life. That's the very thing Second Peter promises, that we have become partakers of the divine nature, verse 4, if you look there. And that word describes, that partaker, that word describes something springing to life, a birth, or the, the plant pushing up out of the ground, something, something coming into fruition. And that made me think of John 15, and the imagery of the vine and the branches. I've been praying John 15 over my life for the past year or so. And I told you that the idea for this series really came from getting ready to launch our oldest son into college this fall. And this, this is what, this is what I want for him more than anything else. And so I've been looking for an excuse to preach from this text because I've been thinking so much about it. And then I listened to a Tim Keller sermon on John 15 and he connected it to 2 Peter 1 and I took that as the Holy Spirit, so... Anytime I come to the same conclusion Tim Keller comes to without consulting first with Tim Keller, I'm like, God speaking. That's my reverence and admiration for him. 
And so I really do think, I really do think these, these texts are connected. But here's our doctrine this morning uh, as we think about this, this theme of godliness. What I want to say to you, if godliness is that we become like Jesus and we're meant to be like Jesus, here's what I want to say to you. Don't focus on being like Jesus. Focus on being with Jesus. And you'll become like him. That word abide. Now, the first thing you ought to do is in your Bible or in the notes here, you ought to go through that, that John 15 passage and circle every time you come across the word abide. It's there a bunch. There's 11 verses, and guess how many times the word abide happens? 11 times in 11 verses. That's a lot. That's bad grammar. It's bad English. But Jesus is making a point here. It dominates these verses. Godliness is a life of abiding, a life full of God, a person full of the life of God, the, the doctrine that, that we're really talking about this morning is the doctrine of union with Christ, that Christianity is more than just believing doctrines and being a good person. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you've been joined to Jesus like the vine and the branches, organically, not just cosmetically, not, not just, you know, incidentally. You've been joined to Jesus, actually, Christ in you. You in Christ, so that all of the power of his life comes into your life and begins to bear fruit. That's union with Christ. Union with Christ is more than just a doctrine. It's a participation. And so in John 3, we read this past week in our community Bible reading, Jesus talks about, with Nicodemus, he says, you know, you need to be born again. If you're a Christian, your heart has been uprooted and replanted into a new stem and into new soil. The life of heaven has come into your life. That's union with Christ. And you experience it as closeness and connection with Jesus through abiding. And so we're going to talk about abiding this morning. And we're going to see four things, and you'll see the four points of the outline. We're going to go really fast through this, though. And I want you to see, as we think about this idea of abiding, don't focus on being like Jesus. Focus on being with Jesus, and you'll become like him. And so abiding, we want to talk about these things. We want to talk about the necessity of it. Secondly, the goal of it. Thirdly, the practice of it. And lastly, the fruit of it, or the why and the what and the how and the who you become. If you put your life to this task of abiding, as Jesus says here in John 15. So first, let's talk about the necessity of, of abiding or the why. Why does Jesus why, why this word from Jesus here? What's the significance of it? And the very first thing you'll see that Jesus does is to confront us with a limit. We need God. The way the flower needs the sun and the rain. We can't do life without him. Isn't that what it teaches? Without him, we shrivel up and die. He's the life source. He's the vine. We are the branches. I did yard work yesterday. If you cut the vine what happens to everything you know from where you cut on up it shrivels up and dies and there's an important lesson in the metaphor here God has life in himself John 5 16 tells us he is self-sufficient he is self-sustaining he is self-replenishing but we are not we do not have life in ourselves we do not have an endless supply of energy and you know, power and all of these things. We were made 
in the very fabric of the way that we've been made, we were made to get life from something outside of ourselves. So we have to, we have no choice. We have to try to attach our hearts to something to get the life that we need. Now we've been made to try to attach our hearts to God who made us. Now this helps us understand sin though, doesn't it? Because sin, according to the Bible, is looking to something other than him for the life that we need. So we can try to attach our hearts to something other than the true source of life, to some other kind of vine. You can do it with a relationship, or the marriage, or kids, or friendships, or a job. Listen, you can even do it with a, with a designer religious experience, with a certain kind of preaching, or a certain style of worship, and say, listen, as long as I can connect to that, I'm going to be okay. But what you don't realize is, even in that, your heart is trying to connect to something other than the person who you've been mean to connect with. And so there's a limit. We need him. We may not want him, but we need him. But then the second thing that Jesus does is he confronts us with a paradigm shift. He says in verse 5, Abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But listen to this. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's intimidating to me. And it's exactly the opposite of the way I normally think about things. I am often too busy getting stuff done to sit down and be with Jesus. I don't abide because it feels counterproductive. It feels, and I feel this almost on a daily basis. I'm so task-oriented. I love my to-do lists. I make one every day. I love to-do lists. Uh, at the end of the day, Ashley usually asks me how, how my, my day went if I had a good day. Uh, and I have two pat answers. These are my two answers to, was it a good day? Yes, it was a great day. I got so much done. Or no, it was a terrible day. I didn't accomplish anything. She's smirking at me because she knows it's the truth. And so almost daily, I feel rushed in my Bible reading and prayer time because the to-do list is there. And I get paid to read the Bible and pray, okay? Jesus is pointing us in the opposite direction, and it really challenges me. He says, if you want to get things done, stop doing so much. I don't spend time with him because I want to get things done. He says, if you don't spend time with me, you won't get anything done. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? I don't believe that. I told you before the story about Martin Luther, who at the very height of the Reformation said, there's so much to do today, I've got to spend the first three hours in prayer. And I think that's right. Now, it doesn't mean you won't get anything done, but it means you won't get the most important stuff done, because that's the stuff that only God can do, which is why he says, without me, you can do nothing, nothing of any real significance, nothing of really any real weight. Now, this applies to almost every part of our lives, but a large part of my job in my life is preaching. And it's true for preaching as much as it is anything else. I, and I'm sorry to use this as an illustration, but uh, it is kind of where I live. So I, I'm, always, I was always, I'm always struck by the story of Balaam and Balak in Numbers, which we read again this past week. And I was this time as well. It's a story about preachers. Balak wants Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel, but Balaam is sent by the Lord with these explicit instructions. You can only speak whatever word I give to you. 
And it's a tension that all preachers feel, but clearly as the story plays out, I won't go into the whole thing, but here's what it says multiple times. Um, the, it doesn't go well. Balak gets really frustrated because Balaam won't say the things that he wants him to say. He only says the things God wants him to say. But it says this. this I just came across this phrase a couple of times in that passage. The Lord met with Balaam and put a word in his mouth. So before he preached, he had to meet with the Lord. He had to abide first, you see. He had to get a word from God. And that's the only way to preach. But it's the only way to do anything. We must abide. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Secondly, we see not only the necessity of it here from what Jesus teaches, but also the goal of abiding or the what. It's just here in verse 9. If you go down just a few verses in verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I, I love the Jude passage we read where it says, build yourself up in the faith, keep yourself in the love of God. Because that is the struggle underneath every struggle, to keep believing that God loves you. So a Christian is a person who has put their hope for salvation, for eternal life, in the love of God. Their confidence is not in their ability to be good, but in God's grace and love to them in Jesus. John will write else, John writes in, in his letters to the church, so we have come to know and to rely upon the love of God for us. That's the Christian faith. We come to know and then increasingly know and rely upon God's love for us. So a Christian comes to God and says, accept me, forgive my sins, give me new life. Not because of my works, but because of Jesus' works, because of his perfect life and his obedient death. And the minute you do that, the Bible says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' perfect record is transferred to your account. And God sees you as being in Jesus. In other words, he sees you as perfect and as ravishingly radiant and beautiful a person as Jesus is. Isn't that awesome? He loves you the way he loves Jesus. That's what the text says. And it's all of grace. It's all of grace. In other words, it doesn't have anything with, to do with what we do. It all has to do with what Jesus has done on our behalf, and it's given to us as a gift. Again, this teaching it, it teaches us something really important about sin, about the opposite of obedience, in, in, in that every problem that you run into, every failure, if you dig down deep enough into those areas of your life, it's because, at the heart of it, it's because you're not abiding in Jesus' love. You've allowed yourself to begin to operate outside of the love of God. I mean, this happens. We go in and out of the love of God. We believe the gospel one minute. The very next minute, we're not believing the gospel, and we have to bring ourselves back into alignment with, with really believing the gospel in the way that we should over and over and over again, all the time, almost minute by minute sometimes in our lives. We fall back into trying to earn our, our, the love and, and um the love and, and salvation that God gives and gain a sense of self through our performance. And in a performance-based system, you're motivated at the end of the day by one of two things, either pride or fear, depending upon whether you're doing good or you're doing bad. And then you just begin to breathe that air. And it begins to erode the sense of abiding in God's love. And it happens in so many different ways. Now, one of my big sins, <clears throat> excuse me, is the fear of man. The Bible talks about this, but the fear of man is uh, when, you're, when you're operating in the fear of man, you're making, well, let me, when, the fear of man is me making your love for me the fuel that my life runs on instead of God's love. 
John 5, Jesus, we read this. Jesus talks about you're seeking glory from one another instead of the glory that comes from only God. So I warm my heart at the fire of your love for me, which creates a bunch of unhealthy dynamics. I have a hard time with honesty. I overcommit. I feel overly responsible for people, which eventually leads me to, to burnout and resentment. And it's just a bad idea. Why? Because you're all sinners. Right? You remember that part? Which means your love runs hot and cold. And I can't rely upon your love. But I keep trying. So what does it mean for me to keep myself in the love of God? What does it mean for me to abide in his love? Well, I've got to continually be repenting of the idolatry of replacing God with people. And then remind myself that the only person's love I really need, I've already got, and I can never lose. And it has nothing to do with how I'm doing. And he loves me better than, than Ashley does, than my kids do, than, than those of you who love me well. He loves me better than you possibly could. It's the fight of my life, though, you see. Well, how do you deal with your anxiety? <clears throat> well, if you're anxious, you're anxious because you've allowed yourself to get outside of God's love. You've lost your confidence in God's heart for you, so you have to get yourself back into the love of God. Uh, Paul in Philippians 4 writes about anxiety. He says, you know, don't be anxious. So, you know, then he just says this. He says, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. So in the middle of that passage there, Paul interrupts his train of thought. It really, if you look at it, it really is that way. He's kind of interrupting his train of thought. He almost shouts in the middle of what he's thinking. Oh, the Lord is at hand. What's he doing? The Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious. What's he doing? He's getting himself back into the love of God. See? He's saying, you're anxious. Don't forget. You're anxious because you've forgotten the Lord's at hand. You're anxious because you, you think, no, God's not paying attention, so who knows how this, this is going to go. And in the middle, he just shouts the truth to his heart to get his heart back into alignment with the reality. He's, he's, he's trying to help him. He's trying to help his heart dwell, abide in God's love. Well, how do you deal with criticism? This is a big one for people. Well, if you're not abiding in God's love then when you face criticism at work or in, a, in the family or wherever, you'll either bow up or you'll melt down. And if you do one of those two things, you'll miss the opportunity to grow because the person who is abiding in God's love can receive the criticism with humility and work through what's right and wrong about it because, listen, because it's not a verdict. The verdict is already in if your faith is in Jesus. You with me? I'm not loved by God because the critic is wrong. I'm loved even in my failures and sins. In truth, the reality of facing criticism for a Christian is that whatever somebody else might accuse me of, they don't know the tiniest little bit of how bad of a person I really am. Right? God knows us all the way to the bottom. And he loves us. And so, being reminded of my failure doesn't threaten my belovedness. Listen, it, it actually establishes it. It's the opportunity to know it more deeply, don't you see? The goal of abiding, what we're trying to do in abiding is to learn to live out of God's love, to not lose, to not let ourselves get outside of God's love because that's when everything starts to go wrong. Repentance is the act of bringing yourself back into the love of God for you in Jesus, of re-believing the gospel and the gospel truth and make, get, getting your life in alignment with the truth of the gospel as it is received. Third, then, 
if that's the goal, if that's the necessity and the goal, then third, the practice. Well, then how do we do this? What are the habits and disciplines that make up a life of abiding? Well, this is pretty straightforward. Again, union with Christ is not just a doctrine. It's something you experience practically. And it's really this. It's consciously being relationally and even emotionally connected to Jesus as you go about your day-to-day. Let me say that again. Consciously, like you, you realize it, consciously being relationally and even emotionally connected to Jesus as you go about your day-to-day. Now, that might seem strange, but that is what we're talking about. Union with Christ is communion with him. And there are a number of ways that we do this. So we look at the John 15 passage. Verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So here we have the personal spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer. And, you know, we kind of gloss over that at times, but that's where the text takes us. So let's just talk briefly about each of those. And so a life of abiding, according to John 15, 7, Jesus says there, is first a life that's saturated with God's word, with Bible reading. Our culture is abandoning faith on a large scale. Kids who grew up in Christian homes are walking away from the faith in their college years in unprecedented numbers. And so people are studying these things. And in all the studies that that are being done, the number one factor, overwhelmingly, the number one factor in whether the kids we send to college keep their faith in their, uh, is the number one factor, is their personal habit of daily Bible reading. Kids who go to college and read the Bible make it. Kids who go to college and don't read the Bible don't. Almost, Almost down the line. So daily Bible reading is the number one factor in spiritual vitality for students and adults. You read day after day the way we do in CBR because eventually when you've done it enough, when you abide in God's words, his words begin to abide in you. You start to feel anxious. And then your heart almost automatically turns to the words of Matthew 6. Don't be anxious about anything. Look at the birds. God takes care of them. Aren't you more valuable to him than they are? And you begin to think about it. And it comes inside and it begins to affect you. And so to have God's words abide in you means your life is so saturated with God's words that in real time, the Bible addresses your emotional reality. You let it argue with you. You let the Bible preach to you. You, you speak God's words to your heart instead of just listening to your heart. And that's why you gotta do that. His words abide in you. But also, he talks about prayer there as well, and it makes sense. It makes sense that if the power source for your life is outside of you, then you'll do more asking than doing. Because doing doesn't get it done. And so he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you there in verse 7. And at first, that sounds like Aladdin and his genie, doesn't it? But in context, I think Jesus is talking about fruit. He wants us to bear fruit. It glorifies God. So he says, if you're anxious and you want peace, ask. If you're overrun with your desires and you need self-control, ask. I do prayer conferences from time to time. uh, And we always look at this verse because the question is, well, what if I'm asking for the wrong stuff? And my answer is this to, to people who ask that question. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you ask for the wrong stuff as long as you're abiding. Jesus wants to be with you. That's the point. He wants to be with you. He doesn't care if you do it right. He just wants to be with you. And if you abide, he can shape your asking. It doesn't matter if you ask the wrong stuff because if you're with Jesus for long enough, he's going to shape your heart to where you're going to ask for the right stuff. So don't worry about whether you're asking for the right stuff because the goal is abiding. 
And, and again, we're talking about a relationship. In Bible study, God talks to us in prayer. We talk back. It's a two-way communication, just like in any other relationship, because our relationship with him is really meant to be that way. So you abide through spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer, but also through a commitment to obedience. So down in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, I have to be careful here because it sounds like that verse is making God's love conditional upon obedience. And I just got through saying that it isn't the case. So what does it mean? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Brian Chapel, who was at Covenant Seminary, our denominational seminary, and, uh, and is now a pastor in Illinois, has written a book that seeks to answer this question. If salvation is by grace, if God does not love us because we're good, then why be good? If obedience doesn't affect our relationship with God, then what motivates our obedience? And his answer I, I, I found so brilliant and so helpful. He says, he says God doesn't love us because we obey. Rather, we obey because he loves us. In other words, our motivation for obedience is, uh, is not that if, we're, if we disobey, uh, something will happen in the relationship. Our motivation for obedience is the relationship itself. That sin isn't a big deal because it means God will punish you. Sin is a big deal because of the way that it damages your relationship with God. This has become something really practical in my life, I have to say. Sin disrupts the intimacy and joy we experience in our relationship with him. So when I was younger, what bothered me about my sin the most was that I had failed, and I didn't like to think that about myself. Now what bothers me about my sin is that I miss the closeness and warmth that I experience with God in times of obedience. I'm actually starting to experience this as the motivator in my life against sin. And when you get a taste of the joy of abiding with Jesus and the at-homeness of it, you'll have a new and powerful desire for obedience. There's a place in the book of Acts where the crowds are amazed at the ministry of the apostles. And it says, I love this, it says, they recognized they'd been with Jesus. It's the private habits of abiding that make whatever public faith we have astonishing. You can tell if someone has been with Jesus, can't you? You can tell, can't you? And that leads to the last thing. And the last thing as we come to a close this morning is the fruit of abiding or the who. Who do you become according to Jesus if you abide with him? Because the roots of his life are buried in the life of the Godhead. All of the juices and the chemicals that explain the power and beauty of Jesus's life coming from the love of the persons of the Trinity, all of that is now flowing from him and into you so that we are, as Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. We participate in the life of the Godhead. So there's a place in mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis says this. He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want your time. I don't want your money. I don't want your work so much as I want you. I've not come to torment your ordinary self. I've come to kill it. No half measures. Hand over your ordinary self. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own life will become yours. That's what Jesus is alluding to in the description of the person who abides. Verse 11, these things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's the description of God's life. Jesus is the vine drilled down deep into the soil of who God is into the life of the Trinity, and he brings that life to all the branches who are by faith vitally connected to him. God is happy. 
He's the most happy being in the universe. The word the theologians used years ago is blessedness. God is completely happy within himself. There is no inner need that's driving the things he does. Everything beautiful and good in the world is the overflow of the joy that God has in himself. Michael Reeves says it this way. He says, the life of God is essentially the outgoing movement of love. Theologians use the word, believe it or not, ecstasy to describe God's life. Ecstasis. Or outside, existing outside of yourself. So Reeves goes on, he says, he is not a God who hoards his life, but one who gives it away as he would show in the supreme moment of his self-revelation on the cross. The father finds his very identity in giving life and being to the son. And the son images his father in sharing his life with us through the spirit. That's our gospel. If you abide in him, what the text says is that his life will become yours. You'll get his joy. Wouldn't that be great? You get that kind of joy? And it will be too much, it says there, for you to hold in. It will start to show up on your face. It'll start to show up in the way you walk and talk. There will be an inner fullness, even in the hard stuff, overflowing joy and generosity and faith. So you'll not be running around trying to get glory because you're empty on the inside. You'll be looking for somewhere to give You'll be looking for someone to love, which is why the very next verse in verse 12, it, why it comes next. Verse 11 says, if you are connected to Jesus, you'll, you'll live with fullness of joy. It'll be overflowing in your life. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. You see the connection? Abiding is a conscious, it's more than a knowing, it's a conscious, oh, an awareness of your dependence upon God and everything. Without him, you can do nothing. Thus the turning of your whole life toward him. God doesn't need to be invoked. We do, I heard someone say one time. In other words, we sang Abide With Me, but that's almost, I, t I asked them to sing that song, but it's almost the wrong song because it's not that, that we need him to abide with us. He's committed that already. We need to abide with him. We need to get ourselves to where he is. That's, that's the command of the scripture. We need to get ourselves to Bible reading. We need to get ourselves into prayer. We, we need to get ourselves here. We neglect corporate worship to our own peril because this is where God says he meets with us. And this is the promise of the text, that if you make your life full of him, then you will become full of his life, the life of God is the overflowing generosity and love towards all that he has made. He lives from the inside out. And if by abiding you become a person who's full of God's life, then you will live from the inside out too, see? You'll live with a wealth of internal resources that will cause you to be bearing fruit everywhere you go. And that's the other big idea in these verses. If you've went through and, and circled the word abide, go through maybe this afternoon and underline every time the words bear fruit shows up. Those are the two things that are connected here. Jesus wants you he wants me. He wants us to bear fruit and glorify God. But you have to have the right stuff on the inside. If you have faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness through abiding, and if they are increasing, 2 Peter 1, 8 says, listen, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful apart from him. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says, but he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Let's pray. So, Father, in these last moments, I pray that this just wouldn't be a song that we sing, but that this would be a moment of abiding. We have just a few minutes left.
It's okay, lunch will wait. We don't have anywhere else to be. Better is one day in your courts, O Lord, than a thousand elsewhere, the psalmist says. Help our hearts not to rush out of this moment, but realize we have just a few tender, wonderful moments left to be with you, to be in your presence with all of these people that we love. And so as we sing, we pray, not only that our hearts would engage with the words that we say, it wouldn't just be our, our voices, but our hearts far from you, but that we would cry out to you, that we would yearn for you, that we would reach out to you and for you the way a little child reaches out for its mother uh, when he sees her feet away, struggling to get out of the hold of whoever's got him because he so desperately wants to get to the one he loves. I pray that would be the posture of our hearts in these last moments. And as we abide, would you work on us? Would you prune us? might bear fruit. I will glorify you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of pathos in that song, which uh, is uncomfortable for some of us, but it sounds like something the psalmists say. The psalmist would say things like, your love, O Lord, your steadfast love is better than life. Here's Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It's not about going to church. It's about being where God is. That's what he's saying. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. Oh, Lord, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Uh, It really, uh, really uh, does cut to the heart of what um, this time is supposed to be. This time of meeting together should be a time of abiding. Uh, And we abide with him here that we might go from here sent by him to bear fruit. Uh, But we go not having done all the abiding we need. We go knowing that with every breath we must abide. And that's what these words promise. That if you would turn toward him, you'll find he's already turned towards you. You'll draw near to him. You'll find he's already drawn near to you. So receive these words uh, and anchor your heart to the hope of them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and for more. Amen. Go in his peace.